If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that we've got about 50 to 60 days of Jesus' life recorded in the four Gospels. That's not a lot. Out of three years of his ministry, we've got about 50 to 60 days of his life represented there. There's a whole lot. Man, it'd be awesome to sit down with Jesus in heaven and say, what about the other thousand days of those three years? What about the other years of your life? What was that while you were on earth? We learned last week that uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 miracles recorded in those four Gospels, plus the heading that says, and Jesus healed everybody that was there. So it was more than 35, but 35 specifically, and then some other ones that were just kind of summed up. We know that last week we heard there's about 50 different uh, parables that he taught, almost all about the kingdom of God. We learned about his sermons and that pastors and preachers these days don't follow Jesus' example because his example was a seven-minute sermon. We learned about all of that last week. So today I want to ask you, what are you passionate about? So, by show of hands, has anybody ever been asked that question in a job interview? Anybody? Yep, okay. I, th- I thought so. It's a pretty popular question. What are you passionate about? We want to make sure that if you're going to accept this job, that there's going to be a fit, that you're going to be able to pursue the things you're excited about, because if you kind of don't like the job, we know at some point your mind's going to wander, and eventually so is your resume. But if you're passionate about it, right? And so we could list things that we're passionate about. Oh, I'm passionate about chocolate. Or I'm passionate about technology or outdoor things. And we could go around and we, we, we'd have an eclectic response if we all talked about what we were passionate about. Well, <clears throat> William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, actually met with King Edward VII of England. And the king was talking to him about his zeal his passion and all those kinds of things that kept him going because he was a passionate man. And, and he said, uh, you've done a great work among the poor. And this is what William Booth said in return. He said, your majesty, some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame, but my passion is for souls. Are you passionate about souls would be a question from William Booth's life. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. I'd love to see that on a signature somewhere. Like he signs at the bottom of his letter. This is what he said. He said, I have but one passion and it is Jesus, Jesus only. And so from these two um, pillars of faith, if you will, in the Protestant movement, then we understand that that we have to have a passion for souls and a passion for Jesus. We've got to get excited and zealous about those things. Uh, We get excited and zealous about a lot of things. It's interesting to me that we can get really, really mad or glad about sports and politics, it seems like, more than our relationship with Jesus, or more than about the plight of humanity and the troubles of sin and those kinds of things, we can get red-faced to the point that an Auburn and Alabama fan literally a few years ago pulled out guns, started shooting at each other in the middle of watching the game. They're that passionate about something on the screen. In politics, we are so impassioned about politics And I don't mean out there, I mean in here, that if I were to dare say something about that I was red or blue, I would make the other half of you really mad. One guy even told me that I was really nearly in trouble when I told him that there would be Democrats in heaven. And he was like, I don't know about that, Pastor, I think you're wrong. 
I mean, we could be more passionate about football and politics than about Jesus and the lost, and there's something askew with that. Now, what's interesting about the word passion is what it means. We're going to study that this morning. But Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. He also said that when he came, he did not come to to be served, but to serve others. So he came to give us an example. He came to serve. He came to seek and to save the lost. And we begin to get a picture of what he was passionate about by how he spent his time and what he talked about. He spent his time with people. He spent his time with his father. He spent his time healing. He spent his time talking about the kingdom. He spent his time seeking and saving the lost. So we can see his passion. We can see his zeal, what he's passionate about. But here's the catch, if you will. If you go back to the root word of passion, it's pati from Latin, which of course has other roots as well, and it means suffering. Passion comes from the root word suffering, and if you're passionate about something, you will be willing to suffer for it. And that's going to be where we're going to go in this message today. If you're passionate about something, you're willing to suffer for it. Lord, we pray, we ask, would you speak to us about passion, about zeal, about desire? Lord, we pray you would speak to us about what is important, about what is life-altering, about what is eternally significant. We pray, Lord, that you would help our passion and our zeal to be in accordance with the things that are eternal and truly matter And help us, Lord, to be willing to suffer for that which we are passionate about. In Jesus' name, amen. So, A.W. Tozer said this, and I think it's a great quote, it's a great understanding of God. He said, God dwells in a state of perpetual enthusiasm. Most people think God dwells in a state of perpetual grumpiness. It's up there, he's grumpy, he's mad, we got to appease him, we got to beg stuff off of him, hopefully he won't strike me with some kind of a malady or some kind of a lightning bolt today, no. He lives in a state of perpetual enthusiasm, A.W. Tozer said. He is delighted with all that is good and lovingly concerned with all that is wrong. He pursues his labors always in a fullness of holy zeal. Right? So God's, God's active, but he's not only active in some kind of a ho-hum kind of a way that maybe I'll give a little thought to this today. He's all in. So when he says to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's because he first gave us an example of loving with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved us that much, and he's showing us that all the time. He does it with zeal and this perpetual enthusiasm. C.S. Lewis said something about our passion and our zeal. And he said, you know, when God looks at our desires, it's not that he actually finds our desires too strong, but instead God finds our desires too weak. C.S. Lewis goes on and he says, because basically we're content to, to kind of placate ourselves with drink and with sex and with ambition when God is offering infinite joy. Oh, sure, yeah, let me have another slice of that chocolate cake. And God says, you want that? C.S. Lewis says, actually, it's more like a child in the mud who would fight you over a mud pie instead of receiving the smorgasbord of food that you'd prepared for dinner and dessert, 
No, I want my mud pie. And we're, we're like that. And God looks at us and he says, why are you so zealous? Why are you so passionate about things that don't matter when you could be truly passionate and truly to the top and overflowing about the things that really matter? C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. I know that's true. No, that's true in my life. I'm pleased with something temporary. I'm pleased with something that, that's, that's a cheap imposter and a, a cheap fake. I, I put something on my car this week that was a cheap fake. Don't do that. <clears throat> when I go to AutoZone or O'Reilly's, usually I get the gold standard one because it's like a little bit more and it lasts you. This time I said, well, I've spent so much on the car this week, I'll just order the one off the internet. There's a reason that it's 20% the cost. So <clears throat> we went to Sonic, and Judah and I are at Sonic, and I keep hearing this noise, and I think it's guys working on a construction site nearby, and Judah's like, no, it's not. I said, I think it is. No, it's not. He's like, look, Dad, the car's smoking. And so the starter that I put on there is melting itself down to oblivion and there's no key in the ignition and I have no wrench to take it off and I'm underneath of the sonic covering and I absolutely know because I've seen a car light up on fire before this way that I'm going to burn down my car and sonic at the same time and I'm praying and I'm looking in the car to try to get something and all of a sudden we hear go and it stopped oh thank you lord I'll push the car home rather than burn down sonic (laughs) thank you lord the point of that story is this cheap Imposters do not bring lasting satisfaction. They don't bring the necessary help. They don't accomplish what they are actually supposed to accomplish. It's a cheap imitation that if it works once, it's a fleeting kind of a working. It's a, yeah, I'm happy for a moment because I had my cup of coffee. But no, we don't need coffee. We need Jesus. Right? I'm happy for a moment because I got this, whatever it is that we've placated or, or self-medicated with, but that's happiness for a moment with guilt and emptiness that follows. But when we get the real thing, when we get Jesus Christ, when we get the fullness of who He is, when we're passionate about the important things, then that's where joy and delight is found. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. This is kind of where we get this understanding of this being Passion Week. You saw the movie maybe a couple years ago by Mel Gibson. 15 years ago. Uh, whatever it was. And it was the passion of the Christ. You say, where in the world did that phrase come from, the passion? Well, it actually comes from Acts 1, 3. And it says that Jesus, after he had been resurrected, he presented himself alive after his Pati, after his suffering, after his passion, by convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom. So we get this understanding of Passion Week being the week of his suffering. And we know that Jesus suffered more than in that one week. But yet we call Passion Week, Passion Week because of what he suffered. So there was a time in Jesus' ministry, he was walking around, if you remember, he walked all over the place, he walked up to Galilee, he walked to Bethany, he walked to the Jordan, he walked to Jerusalem, and, and as he's walking to all of these different places, there comes a place in his ministry where it says in Luke's gospel that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem resolutely, right? He, I mean, firmly, fixed, established. He looks at Jerusalem, and he's not going to be distracted. He's not going to go on a secondary path or go pick up some ice cream on the way. He's resolutely setting out for Jerusalem. He was determined to go. And here's the interesting thing about this. Point number one, 
Jesus knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he would suffer. And yet he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew he was going to suffer. Ahead of time, he knew what was going to happen. He knew it was going to be painful. He knew that it was going to hurt. For me, when I know things are going to hurt, I tend to avoid those things at any cost, even sometimes to my own detriment. Because when you go to the gym, sometimes it hurts. There's a great thing at the end of that workout, but it hurts sometimes to run a couple of miles. And it would be easy to say, if I know what's coming and I know what's coming is going to hurt, then I'm not going to do it. And we come up with lots of excuses why we don't have to go to the gym or we can hit snooze and we don't have to get up and, and face the day. But Jesus resolutely set out, established, committed, firmly set out for Jerusalem. Mark 9:12. he knew he was going to suffer. He said to them, Elijah does come first and he restores all things, talking about a prophecy of John the Baptist. And yet how is it written, the Son of Man, he will suffer many things and he will be treated with contempt. Jesus knew ahead of time he was going to suffer. Mark 10.32, they were on their road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was walking, or Jesus was walking on ahead of them on the way and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And he took the twelve aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Jesus knew he was going to suffer, and he did not avoid it. Uh, they tell me that if you run um, too far, like you know, foot race, you can actually have your toenails fall off. I've not had that, thankfully. But they say if you run a marathon, a lot of people have their toenails fall off, and they still choose to do it anyway. They, they talk about the fact that you can, you can have heat rash from your clothing rubbing up against you after 26 miles, and people still choose to do it anyway for fun. But Jesus knew the pain. He knew the suffering. He knew how much it was going to hurt. He knew how much of a burden he was going to bear, not only physically, but in carrying the weight of the sin of the world. And he went anyway, knowing he was going to suffer. Now, here's why. He knew he was going to go and suffer because if there was going to be any hope of our salvation, there had to be this sacrifice, this suffering for us. Now, this is one of those mysteries where we can't quite wrap our mind around the fact that, um, that, that, that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. That's the Trinity. We can't quite wrap our mind around the fact that God always was and always will be. We also can't quite understand why Jesus had to die. We grasp at it. We have limited understanding. The best that I can come up with has been explained to me this way. And if I go to Larry's house and Larry and I are just having a cup of tea and I get up to go get a refill of tea and I knock his lamp over and it goes to the ground and it's this antique lamp and it shatters everywhere. And Larry says to me, I forgive you. Don't worry about it then when I go home, he's already forgiven me, right? I don't have to replace the lamp. I don't have to pick up all the pieces. Larry says, I got it. But when I go home with, with my forgiveness from Larry, he's still got a broken lamp. 
He's still got the mess that's left over from that broken lamp, and somebody's got to clean it up. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's because he's cleaning up our mess, and he's paying the price, and we can still say, well, pastor, that only makes a little bit of sense because there's still big looming questions in my mind. Mine too. But God is infinitely more wise than us, and he said that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And he said that the wages of sin is death. Because when we resist his light and his holiness, then we're choosing darkness and death. And so Jesus had to suffer. And he had to bear our sins if there was going to be any hope of our salvation. Jesus told this to the disciples um, in Luke 9.22. He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He said that he must. It has to happen. In Luke 24, this is when he was walking on the road to Emmaus after he resurrected, and they were saying to him, don't you know all the things that have happened in these last days? And he says, well, tell me of it. And they said, well, you know of Jesus, and, and we thought he was going to be the Savior, and he died. And, Jesus, and then we heard some people say, some of the women say that this morning he was resurrected, and Jesus said, and they still didn't know it was Jesus, he said, well, don't you know? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer? And he opens the Bible, not the physical Bible, but the, he opens the Bible to them, the, the teaching and, and the, the message of the scriptures to them, and he explains to them why the Messiah had to suffer and die. And it was for us to have any hope of our salvation. Point number three is that Jesus suffered physically. This, isn't, this is an emotional suffering. We know that. There's a spiritual weight and burden of him carrying our sins, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But he suffered physically. It was a, it was a miserable suffering. It was a, it was a suffering that you and I could barely endure. I watched The Passion of the Christ those 15 years ago. I watched it, and I flinched, and I cried, and I turned away. And then even earlier this year, I tried to watch two minutes of it. And I just couldn't take because it was this beating of, the, of a pure and innocent man. And it was just a, a, a treacherous beating with the whip and the ripping of the flesh. And, and I would look away and even listening to it, it just made me sick to think the suffering he went through for me. And so we know he suffered physically. Matthew 17, 12, Jesus telling him ahead of time what was going to happen. He said, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. I've been physically bullied before. Maybe you have. Physically bullied at school, been hit, been tripped, been kicked. But you know what? As painful as that was in my own heart and in body, it pales in comparison to anything that Jesus and then many of his disciples have gone through as well. And so in Mark 8, 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days to rise again, he suffered physically at the hands of men. So you're beginning to see, if you're passionate about something, you're going to suffer for it. You're going to resolutely set out and, and you're going to know what's coming, and you're going to suffer for it because you are passionate about it. You're zealous for it. Now, you remember what it talks about in Psalm 69, and Jesus quoted it, that, or, or the disciples quoted it about Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume the Messiah. Passion for your house. You and I are the house of God. 
So we're not just talking about a building. We're talking about you. God is passionate about you being holy and you being filled with his love and you being pure and you being clean. So when it says that, that, that the Lord is zealous or zeal for his house will consume him, it's about us that he's passionate about. It's for us that he's suffering. So the next point is that the price of sin is great. The consequences of sin are great, but the atonement for our sin or the price for our salvation was Jesus' suffering. Luke 23 talks about the fact, it says, this was, this was on the cross, okay? These are the thieves, uh, the thieves, one on each side of Jesus, and one of them is mocking Jesus, and the other one is defending Jesus. And this is what happens in Luke 23, 41, and 40 and 41. Do you not fear God, the one thief said to the other, since you are under the, sentence of con- the same sentence of condemnation? Don't you fear God? We are indeed suffering justly, We are receiving what we deserve, the thief said, for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So so the price of sin is great. The consequences of sin are great. The atonement for our sin, the price, was Jesus' suffering. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, we're reminded of this. You and I are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Isn't that powerful to remember? Now... They say that the year after a divorce is the year that the divorced couple starts looking their best in many years. They say they go get, um, she go get, goes and gets a makeover. Uh, he'll get a haircut. They'll change their clothing styles. They'll join a gym. They might put themselves on a diet. And the year after a divorce, they start investing back in themselves to make themselves look good and try to make something of their lives. And interestingly enough, oftentimes they'll say that there's even a jealousy of, hey, what, what are you cleaning yourself up and looking like that now when you could have been doing that for me a year ago or two years ago? Right? And what might have happened if we started investing in ourselves and our marriages before it falls apart and still waiting afterwards? And you say, what does this have to do with the message? The scripture says this. The scripture says your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse. Just like the scripture says you are not your own. You were bought and paid for with a price. You belong to him, right? And, and so here's the thing. Most of the time when I think about how to treat my body, I'm not thinking about honoring God or my wife, I'm thinking about what my taste buds want. But I'm not my own. My body is not my own. And, and think about this. When a caretaker stops taking care of themselves, what happens to the person they're giving care to? And we even probably, perhaps have seen it. When the caretaker gets sick and dies, it may not be much longer before the person they were caring for dies. If we don't take care of this as a temple of the Holy Spirit, we are not only dishonoring the people around us, but we're dishonoring God because we aren't our own. We are part of the body of Christ. And when one part suffers, the other part suffers. And when one part's hurting, the other part's hurting. And so it could be that the way we take care of our mind, body, and spirit is, is, so, is, is actually selfish because we're not considering how it affects the people around us or it affects the Lord. And, and here's, here's the thing that I want us to understand. The price of sin is great, 
the atonement for our sin, the price of our salvation was Jesus' suffering because we're not our own. He's bought and paid for us, and then we need to honor him and honor the body with how we live our life because our sin was great, but how much greater was his sacrifice? We need to honor his sacrifice and his suffering. If we understand the heart of Jesus, the eternal agape, unconditional love of God, we will better understand his suffering. Probably one of my all-time favorite scriptures, and I quote it a lot from Jeremiah 31.3, that God has loved us with an everlasting, loving kindness. He says, I've drawn you with loving kindness. I love that. It's just this picture of this gentle tugging on our heart and pulling us in. If we understand that love, then we understand his suffering was not just physical. Right? There, there were at least three other types of suffering that he, that he had. You, you realize when you love somebody, it, it costs you something, right? When you love somebody, because love isn't just cooped up in your heart and your mind, love is expressed, it costs you something. And so what you're passionate about, you're going to suffer for. You're going to go out of your way. And we've got goofy songs about walking a thousand miles to fall down at your door. And I mean, there's just goofy stuff that we say because we understand that if we really are passionate, if we really love, it's going to cost us something. Jesus suffered because he loved us. Psalm, or, or John chapter 2, verse 17 <clears throat> His disciples actually remembered him talking about this. Zeal for your house will consume me. He was consumed with zeal. He was consumed with love for us. We also know that Jesus suffered through the the pain of grief for lost and hurting people. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. He wept. He didn't just suffer physically. He suffered in his emotions. He suffered because he saw the plight of humanity. We also know that he suffered because he refuse temptation. There's a suffering that goes with refusing temptation. A suffering of waiting. A suffering of trusting. Because I'm going to trust God instead of uh, dealing with it in my own way or following this temptation. And so we know that, that, well, Luke 22, this was what happened the week before or the night before he was crucified. He was in agony. He was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. And he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He suffered because he was tempted. And he was refusing temptation because his love for us was greater. So then, what does that mean for us? Well, Jesus freely chose to suffer for you and for me. He actually said, nobody's making me do this. Father hasn't, and you haven't. I freely lay down my life, and I freely take it back up again. John chapter 10, verse 18. He set us an example because he freely chose. So what should change in yours and my life because of Jesus' suffering? What should change in yours and my life because of Jesus' suffering? I think just a couple of things I'll put out there, and I want you to pray about it this week. But we should have a greater understanding of what unconditional, sacrificial love looks like. This is a true story, and it was about a child who had contracted uh, an illness. I don't remember what it was, but it was, it was an illness that was taking the child, and it was so that if the mom were to kiss the, the child, she would get it as well. And the child is in her arms and, and dying on death's door, and she says, Mama, kiss me because it had been days. And the mama leans down and kissed her. And the mama lost her life too. It's a true story. 
But that's the picture of unconditional love. I love you so much that if it costs me my life to show you my love, I will do it for you. That's what we should get from this picture and understanding of Jesus' suffering. We also, what should change in our lives is that we should know how we can show off or live out his agape love. We've seen it. Jesus said, I've set you an example so you should do as I've done for you. We've seen it. Are we doing it for others? Right? We therefore should know that we can live this out. Paul also said in Philippians, he said that, that we can participate in Jesus' sufferings. In other words, we can cry over the lost like Jesus cried over the lost. We can resist temptation like Jesus resisted temptation. We can help work for the hurting and the downtrodden and the neglected and the forsaken just like Jesus did. We can participate in his sufferings. You and I are passionate about what we suffer for. And Oswald Chambers drives it home with this. <laughs> Recognize that all three men on the crosses that day suffered. The sinful, the, the bad, unrepentant, defiant thief who mocked God, he suffered. And he suffered for what he was passionate about, himself. And then the penitent man, he suffered. The, one, the other thief who was penitent and asked for the Lord to remember him, he still suffered because of the sins that he had done, but yet at the end of his suffering was glory because he was penitent and he looked to the Savior. Jesus, the perfect, sinless one, suffered. It's just exactly like Jesus said, in this world there's trouble. If you're defiant, if you're repentant, and none of us are in the third category, none of us are sinlessly perfect, but it doesn't matter who it is. We're going to suffer, and we're going to suffer about what we're passionate about, and Jesus was passionate about you and me. And we have this heritage, we have this heritage of suffering, but what are we going to do with it? Are we going to let that become a passion for God's glory and for the salvation of people, or are we going to just push away and say, well, that's a nice story at Easter time. Final story, and then we're going to pray. A group of people were standing outside a very large and ornate cathedral in Europe. I, I don't know which one. They were gawking at it, looking at the craftsmanship. Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. Look at how they carved that out. Look at the window. Look at the spires. Look at all that. It's gorgeous. And they said, why can't we build like that today? Why can't we build anything like that today? And the other man that was with him responded this way, and he said, you know what? They had convictions. They had passion. We have opinions. We have ideas. We have, you fill in the blank. We have platitudes. They had passion. If you're passionate about it, if you're passionate about the Lord and his glory, you'll suffer for it, as he did for our salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you, knowing what you would suffer, knowing that you would hurt physically and emotionally and even spiritually carrying the weight of our sin, you went to the cross and you suffered because you love us that much. But I love the fact that your word declares that our light and momentary suffering 
is going to produce for us an eternal glory that outweighs it all. And Lord, we have that in you. You are the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord, you suffered and bled and died, but then you rose again and you brought glory to the Father and you're bringing glory to all who will rise again with you. So Lord, I pray that we will see your suffering and we will weep over it, Lord. We will weep over our own sin that put you there and, and, and we will weep because we realize how great you are and how low we are. And we'll weep because we see, oh Lord, the brokenness of the world. But then, Lord, our weeping will turn into dancing. And Lord, our mourning will turn into rejoicing because, Lord, we know that your suffering for us was for us to participate in your glory. God, forgive us and cleanse us of our sin that put, us on, put, that put you on that cross. Forgive us and cleanse us and remove it from us, Lord, and empower us to live in a way that is passionate as you are. And may we be willing, Lord, to suffer as you did so that the world may know and that glory may come to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the power of this, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.